Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This podcast, now halfway through its second season, which happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, has garnered well over 22,000 downloads. We thank you, listeners. We will continue to bring you the stories of agile, adaptive, and innovative public, public charter, and private school educators and education leaders until we have achieved a thousand points of light. We are many va'a, one voyage, all in it for all kids on all islands. Today, my guests are Art and Reen Kimura. Profoundly impacted by the Challenger disaster, 20 years ago, Art and Reen created Future Flight Hawaii, a space-themed educational program, while Art, a former teacher and school administrator, was assigned to the Office of Space Industries, part of the Hawaii Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. When that office was closed in 2002, the Hawaii Space Grant Consortium adopted Future Flight Hawaii as the centerpiece of its K-12 educational programs, where it continues to grow and touch the lives of so many. With their ongoing affiliation with Hawaii Space Grant, the Kimuras have created a whole host of educational and public outreach activities that have reached an estimated 150,000 students, their parents, and teachers. The Kimura's work includes K-12 educational programs, science nights, courses for teachers, grants, and participation in local, national, and international engineering educational programs. For a sampling of programs, search online for Future Flight Hawaii, Astronaut Ellison Onizuka Day, Astronaut Lacey Veach Day, and Robotics in Hawaii. Former Hawaii Governor Linda Lingle, in her 2008 State of the State address, called Art Kimura the father of Hawaii robotics, which is epic. 
And now, here's my conversation with Reen and Art Kimura. Art and Reen Kimura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation, the opportunity to share. Mahalo. So, Art, I figured it would be fun to start with something fun right out of the gate. So since space is such a huge part of your life, what are your like one to two favorite all-time space movies? That's a good question, but it's evolved over time. Uh, as a child, I loved Buck Rogers. Then later on, when Star Wars came out, that became my favorite. But more recently, I've been really enjoying the more uh, the real world type of space movies, such as Apollo 13, mm. Hidden Figures, those kinds of things. So I enjoy talking to our scientists about what's really real about these and where they find discrepancies in the in the portrayal of the movie. So I would say number one would be uh, Apollo 13 mm. and number two would be Hidden Figures. Mm. I love Apollo 13. And, and you know, Art, the other day, I think it was last week, I was talking with a group of young people and I mentioned 2001 A Space Odyssey and not one of them knew what I was talking about. I felt very deflated in that moment. I'm like, oh, I think I'm getting old. Um, so, um, so Reen, I understand that you um, are a fan of the early Star Wars series. So what was it about those early films that captured your attention and your imagination? Thank you so much for that question. <laughs> I've been thinking about my favorites. And um, one of the reasons why I enjoyed Star Wars is it seemed to leap forward into the future Hmm. Um, and draw the viewer's imagination. I really like that about it. Other than that, um, being a history person, not so much a, a science fiction uh, type of person, I really enjoyed Apollo 13. I enjoyed October Sky. I, hmm. I like thinking about the boys that had a vision and the challenges. And more recently, of course, I enjoyed Hidden Figures. Mm, yeah. Yeah. All of all of those are my favorite films. And I, I always look forward to when new films come out that are related to space. And um, hopefully someday we'll be able to get back into the theaters again, where we can see them up on the big screen with the great sound. Um, so, Reen, if I have my math correct, you two have been married for 53 years. Is that correct? Sounds about right. <laughs> Sounds right. Okay. <laughs> um, so, Reed, when did you meet? And if I may be so bold as to ask, like, what did you see in art that prompted you to think, this guy has potential and I could be around him for a long time? Oh, that's so funny that you should ask that. Um, <clears throat> well, we both came from the neighbor islands to Honolulu to attend the University of Hawaii at Manoa, um, art a year earlier than I. We both dormed on campus mm -hmm. and of course made many friends from neighbor islands as well as on Oahu. And uh, it seemed we ended up on a date and uh, I was not interested in dating at that time uh, but I thought that 
that Art seemed like a pretty intelligent guy. <laughs> he was smarter than me in the sciences, and that was attractive. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Art, what explains the longevity of your partnership with Reen? I think longevity, I, I think she's been very supportive of the things that I, I like to do. Uh, the nice thing is we've been able to do many of our work together. We have a common interest in education, of course, as teachers. And she actually was the one instrumental in my getting into teaching because while I was at the university, my dream was to be a fighter pilot or a marine biologist. Mm-hmm. Well, fighter pilot's dream died quickly because of my eyes and marine biology died because I got totally bored in the class that I was taking. Serene was the one that talked me into taking my zoology degree and turning it into a secondary science teaching degree. Mm-hmm. You know, Art and Breen, it's so interesting because one of the silver linings of this terrible COVID pandemic is that um, for my wife and I are celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary on Sunday. And um, for the majority, for 19 of those years, we both went off to work in our separate locations and didn't see each other throughout the day, except when we got home, you know, exhausted at the end of the evening. But COVID pushed us both into the house and she's the publisher of Hawaii Business Magazine. So she's running the magazine um, in the room next to me. Um, And so we have now been able to be together for an entire year, which is absolutely fantastic. I, 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 so I so appreciate Art, what you said, um, you know, that you get this these strange opportunities that come along from time to time where everything kind of shifts on a dime um, and you get to do things a little bit differently. Yeah. It's very, it's very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, you were both teachers well before No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top um, back in the 90s. So Art, you were teaching biology, as you mentioned, and Reen, you were teaching in the humanities history. Is that correct? You were, Is that what you were working on? Well, actually, I never really taught in the secondary uh, mm. education field of social studies, which I was trained to do because of our children mm. uh, trying to be available, raising them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went off to a part-time position at Honganji Mission School, which is a private school on Palik Highway. Mm-hmm. And that served our family well because I didn't need to commute out to maybe Waianae or Nanakuli, where the jobs were. Mm-hmm. And uh, my young children could go to preschool there with me. Mm, So I did not get into secondary education until I helped develop the middle school program at Honganji. Mm, I mm -hmm. had the joy of experimenting and teaching in elementary and computer science when there were only three of us in the state attempting to do this. Mm, Got it. Got it. Okay. So Art, um, what I think my question was around what was it like to be a teacher back then during what is too, you know, often referred to as like the factory model of education. And I've, I've read some things about how you broke out of that factory model pretty darn early. Um, so what was that like? Well, in those days we had, we had a guide, you know, put out by the state, um, 
like the standards. They weren't called standards, but it was a, our Bible basically on how to teach biology. Um, we've pretty much followed a prescriptive plan guided by the textbook that we had adopted. So our school, but McKinley High School adopted BSCS as a biology. So there were several of those types of programs. So I, I think looking back as to how I was teaching, uh, I did labs twice a week. We had, we had a schedule in which we could do 90-minute uh, labs twice a week and one short period. But um, very quickly, I found out that um, there were hands-on activities that we're doing all the time. I was correcting 300 lab reports a week. But I wanted to give the students a real experience. Um, so this is why I developed a program in which our students twice a week would report to field centers at the Honolulu Zoo, the Waikiki Aquarium, Straub Hospital, Hawaiian Humane Society. And there they would actually be working with professionals, nurses, pharmacists, veterinarians, zookeepers. And it was, you know, I, I taught that class for nine years before I left McKinley. Mm -hmm. And that gave them a reality of how things work in the world um, mm -hmm. uh, in that field experience. And As a teacher, it, it was a joy. Uh, mm -hmm. So, How did you go about initially setting up those relationships with those field centers, Art? Like, what, what were your first steps in doing that? Well, I had read in a paper that there were uh, groups going into the Honolulu Zoo at night camping there. Mm. And so I called them and immediately they denied me because they said people were abusing that privilege by playing volleyball and you know having loud noises. I begged them and begged them and I said I, I you know I'll bring my science club there and so over time it ended up where they would allow me to go in by myself. I mean I, I built a relationship with them and then eventually they asked me to serve on the zoo education board. And one of the immediate needs they had was saying that they had a lack of docents that would guide the uh, students that would be visiting the zoo. And this is where we took off on the idea. Now, I, I didn't invent that idea. It came actually from, I think it was Kailua High School was already running a community-type program like that. So I kind of copied their model. Mm -hmm. So initially, it was the zoo, and then we wanted to expand it. So we went to the aquarium then to the Hawaiian Humane Society, and then finally to Straub Hospital. So we had four sites that we would rotate the students through. Mm, wow. So it came initially from just volunteering for their board and then yeah. seeing what their needs were. Yeah, I, I that's so awesome and remarkable, Art. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there were shining examples of these kinds of partnerships that were being built um, quote unquote, back then. But now today, this is almost like a new topic of conversation for educators who have not contemplated that kind of thing. Um, and I'm very, very encouraged in this moment to see educators, public, private, and charter all across the state of Hawaii, reaching out to local organizations and finding out the kinds of things that you found out back then. Um, and it just means that kids are going to have these real world experiences um, so that's that's very cool. Um, I'm I'm super curious um, to know um, our listeners will be as well to hear about your experience, Art, um, applying to be the first teacher in space, which was 1985, if I've got that correct. That's some 36 years ago. Um, what is that correct? 
yeah. It was uh, the application came out in 1984. Oh, okay. And selection occurred in 1985. Right. So, Art, what were you thinking and feeling as that moment when the first teacher would be selected approached? So, as a child, I, I love playing with rockets. I mean, we would make our own rockets out of fertilizer and sugar, um, use uh, paper and make, make rockets, and we'd launch them. And so I've always had a fascination about space. I have numerous plastic models of spacecraft that I built as a child. So I've always had that dream. Uh, when the announcement came out that uh, President Reagan would be selecting a private citizen to go into space, and then they determined that it would be a teacher, I was so excited. I, um, the application came out. Now, I applied knowing the chances of winning was almost zero because I felt nationally there'd be hundreds of thousands of teachers applying. Mm -hmm. As it turned out, not that many applied compared to the national uh, pool of teachers. In Hawaii, there, I believe there are 19 teachers that applied. Now I applied thinking for, for the rest of my life, I can say I tried, I'm in line. Mm -hmm. Even if the line is 100,000 long, I'm in line. You know, I didn't want to ever leave this thing saying I didn't even try. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate um, in the selection. Uh, Hawaii, because I guess we're a small state, we only had 19 applicants. There was only one uh, selection group. In other words, in California, they had to go to layers in order to be selected. Every state could send two. So even if California is a bigger state, they only had two, New York two, Hawaii two. So Myself and Dr. Joe Ciari, a physics teacher at St. Louis, were selected to represent Hawaii in this contest. Mm -hmm. So we went to Washington, D.C. in 1985 for a week, and all the judges were there, and we met the other candidates. And I, um, it was just an honor to be a part of this group. And we still dialogue, we communicate as, as alumni. Of, we call ourselves the class of 51L. Mm. As NASA designated us as space ambassadors during this whole program. Mm. And Breen, what do you recall about Art's state of mind as that moment of selection approached? Well, I recall it vividly um, as if it were yesterday because we had returned home from Art being in the Air Force. Uh, we were stationed in places far away from Hawaii. We returned home and Art uh, was anxious to begin his uh, biology teaching at, um, in the public school. When that opportunity arose, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't shocked. Nor did I question his wanting to apply for this uh, dream to go into space. Mm -hmm. That's what I remember. He, he was very deliberate about preparing his application. Mm -hmm. and, and as the selection moment arrived, what, what were you observing, Reen, about, about Art's, you know, kind of mental state? He must have been extremely excited, even though he said a second ago that he really didn't anticipate being picked. Well, just imagine this lofty dream 
Yeah. And expecting uh, hundreds of thousands of educators, well qualified, eager to have this experience apply. Uh, you have to, you have to be real about your application. Um, when he and Joe were selected, of course, I was very happy for him. He was one step closer to launching into space. Mm -hmm. um, he was, as usual, I think, um, quiet and humbled, but um, deliberate about putting forth his best effort. Mm -hmm. And Art, if I can follow up, like even today, as you're watching with SpaceX and, and other programs that are actually taking people into space, I can imagine that the, the dream of being in space hasn't died for you, that it's it's not realistic, of course, but um, but it's there. Is, it, is that true? Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. I mean, I would still want to go if I had the opportunity. <laughs> um, I mean, my... My colleagues thought I was crazy in a way because I have a fear of heights and I get motion sickness. And they said, <laughs> what, what are you thinking? You know, uh, one, I, I'm slightly claustrophobic. So I had all the wrong things in my against me. But that dream was always there. And mm. absolutely. Uh, even after Challenger exploded, the media called and I said, yeah, I'd go in a minute, you know, mm. if I had the opportunity. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, to see the earth from afar, in my application, I said it would be the most humbling of all experiences because we would re easily realize that we are, you know, such a small part of the entire universe. When you see the earth without lines uh, dividing countries, it would be such an amazing experience to share, I think, with, with students that, that whole perspective, which astronauts do today as well. Mm, that's awesome. So Art and Breen, that's a perfect segue to, to this next question where we're going to shift a little bit more towards education. Um, Art, I pulled the following quote from an article written about your work in education, and you said, um, the main thrust of what we try to envision is that students will become interested in exploration, in innovation. Um, so I'm excited that there is um, a growing population of educators and even non-educators thinking deeply about students becoming explorers and innovators and creators rather than passive receptacles of information. So. How do we as a nation unleash the creativity, the imagination, the innovation that we seem to know already exists in every kid from birth? Um, what do we need to do and what should we stop doing in order to realize this? Um, so Art, I'll have you go first on that and then Breen will see what you think. Thank you. Well, I've had a slide, PowerPoint slide that I've used for a long, long time. It says... Um, how do we prepare students for jobs that have not been created yet? I mean, that slide has been part of our basic discussion to parents and to teachers that what kind of world are we preparing students for? And so I think it needs to be, I think part of what we've seen is uh, we reflect on the fact that um, much of the science, for example, in our schools today has existed uh, for decades, you know, these folks that decided a oh, students should learn this and that and that. And yet a large part of the real world experience has been lacking. So this really needs, I think we need to think about um, 
now with the internet, you can find information everywhere. So it's not so much memorizing things anymore. It's really how do you use the information to create um, a better process, a better product. Um, when we talk about climate change, how do we develop the proper um, menu so that we can solve this issue? And so there's great open-ended opportunities available to educators today. It's more of a mindset, I think. So hmm. I appreciate those students that are teachers that like to go out of the box and take risks. And really, it's a risk sometimes. Uh, get out of your comfort zone and really make a difference uh, by allowing students. We, we need to empower students to become um, the expert, not mm -hmm. that we just give information, just pour information into their brain, which is easily forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, I think. We, we have so many issues to solve, so many problems to solve. Um, I think what I'm hearing you saying is let's get the kids started on solving those problems real early. Is that, is that what I'm hearing here? Absolutely. I think early on we need to put in their head that, you know, we're not just going to expect you to regurgitate information to us, but become um, visionary, um, become the innovators, think out of the box. And so I often tell teachers in during the pre-service workshops we do or parents during family science night, it's really about um, not so much the what, it's really developing the why and the how. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. our system and our society drives people away from the how and the why. It's more about what is the answer, circle the answer. You're, you're measured on the answer, not so much how you derive the answer itself. Mm -hmm. And Reen, you've been with Art every step of the way along this process. What are your thoughts about um, what we need to do to give kids an opportunity to be explorers and innovators and, um, and creators? Well, I really feel that we need to be, adults need to be role models for children to be excited about what's right in front of them in the real world, what they're hearing, what they're seeing, and be excited to learn more and understand deeper about their real world. And that real world, Art and I have often said, is the social and the scientific world mm. that kids truly are curious about. So when they have a question, Let's pause, take a moment to listen to that question, mm. celebrate the question, mm. and perhaps we can together pursue some answers. Mm. But I like that children are forever curious. Uh, just a few days ago, we prepared a congratulatory message to the pre-service teachers that we assist at UH Manoa. And we said that we hoped that they would be excited to learn something new every day and share that excitement with their students so that they in turn will do the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Reen, I think you and I should, we should go into the bumper sticker business and our bumper sticker will be celebrate the question. I love that. 
Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, we can we can paste it on every car and every computer uh, everywhere. That would be that'd be a great tagline as we go forward. So, um, everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guests. Art and Reen Kimura are the creators of Future Flight Hawaii and much much more. So, um, I read about a moment when students from Punahou and Pearl City High School spoke via satellite uplink to the crew of a space shuttle mission. And this was during the Obama administration a few years ago. Um, and Art, you made a comment about the quality of the questions students asked, which were more than just about what astronauts eat or how they go to the bathroom. Um, you seemed impressed by that quality. So I think, Art, my question is, what is the value of these types of educational moments, these sort of uplink moments where you, where you connect with somebody um, out in the field, if you will, um, and professionals in the field? And what has to be done to make these kinds of moments very valuable for everybody concerned? I think we need to share a broad range of experiences with students because you never know which experience would touch a child. I've had the privilege of meeting maybe 30 astronauts and one of the major questions I always ask them is, what inspired you to become the high-level person that you became? Mm -hmm. And often they talk about an experience, like my father took me out on a dark uh, night out on the farm field and looked at the sky, and it inspired me that I want to go there. Others talked about a teacher that mentored them, a, a grandparent that gave them you know, confidence. So each one had a different answer for me. So I think we need to share a wide variety of experiences with our young people. Um, this particular event was a live shuttle uh, downlink that we arranged with NASA. Those days, it was not as easy because uh, we didn't have as wide range of the internet available to us. So we had to have phone lines and that signal went all over the place. And I think my thrill was that I, I welcomed the crew, so my voice went into outer space for the first time. Mm. And it, it was a very exciting. And, and it led to a number of things, because one of the crew members who was taking his first flight was educator astronaut Joe Akaba. Uh, Joe was a middle school science teacher, and when NASA opened the second opportunity for educators to apply, he was one of four uh, educators selected to become an astronaut. And... Joe and I, we have become very good friends now because after his first flight, uh, prior to his first flight, he had come to Hawaii uh, as a guest of NASA. He spoke at our astronaut Lacey Beach Day. And following that flight, you know, we kept in touch and uh, we brought Joe to Hawaii in 2019 to be our guest speaker, uh, toured him to schools. By then, he had flown three times in space, spent almost a half a year in space. So, um it can lead to a number of things, uh, taking advantage of it. That, that uh, Punahou downlink was so interesting because President Obama came from that school. NASA opened the gate for us. In other words, it mm -hmm. went longer than normal. <laughs> uh, they, they were so accommodating knowing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Reen, I think my follow-up question relates to what you were talking about a minute ago about questions. You know, that it... it I wonder what we have to do as an education community to really value the question, to put the question front and center instead of the answer, 
front and center. I, I wonder what your thoughts are about that. Exactly. Well, coming from a history or social studies um, training versus looking at arts science training, mm -hmm. I realized that social science um, is left to the author to interpret how history happened. And for me, not being a, a multiple choice type of good tester, I was always looking at questions and hoping that I would be assessed on essay questions because then I could pose back the question mm. um, to whomever was assessing my understanding. So th that became for me, um, I suppose my support system of students who felt um, not confident in the classroom or their parents who weren't sure that they could support their child in the academics um, the freedom to question and the freedom to pursue truth in your area of interest, I think is very powerful. Mm -hmm. I use that method of approaching social studies by doing research, helping the students develop their research skills. I think for all of us, mm -hmm. the excitement in the pursuit of truth, understanding facts, understanding opinions is very important for adults, educators, mentors, supporters, politicians, mm. as well as children. I think we need to support that open-minded, open-ended approach to learning. Mm. Wow, Reen, you're you're singing my song. I I also was a terrible, <laughs> terrible multiple choice tester when I was in school, um, and it's largely the reason why I I never enjoyed school. But in my 17 years teaching history um, at the high school level, I was uh, I found myself every year becoming more and more relentless about developing students' ability to ask questions, um, and questions that are grounded in information, grounded in research. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm so stoked to hear you say that. And I, I'm feeling encouraged in this moment because I'm seeing signs across the state and even nationally and even globally um, that that's something that's starting to gain momentum. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, that's good. I'm glad we made a connection there. Yeah. You know, I just want to say one more thing. Back in the day when I was developing curriculum for the elementary and then into the middle school, we had a document put out by the federal government called A Nation at Risk. Yep. Mm -hmm. 1984. And I look at that and I look at that and I think about it. And I feel today we are perhaps even more at risk because we have not celebrated um, the curiosity, mm. the pursuit. Mm -hmm. I could not agree more. That document came out during the Reagan administration. Um, I, yeah, 1984, I believe, was the nation at risk. 
Um, and uh, the risk now today is a completely different risk. It was true then, um, and I think it's still true today. So yeah, the curiosity part is key. So um, one more question, and then we'll we'll take a short break. Um, to the both of you, I am supremely interested in the idea of pipelines through which kids move from kindergarten to places like NASA and other frontiers in science and business and technology and even the humanities. Um, so Space Grant, if I have this right, um, operates at the intersection of NASA's interests and the state's interests. And although it is primarily primarily, sorry, a higher education program, space grant programs encompass the entire length of the education pipeline, including elementary, secondary, um, and informal education. So Art, I'll start with you. What is at the core of this pipeline idea? Uh, why work so hard to create this pipeline for kids? Well, uh, Space Grant, you are right. It's mainly a, a undergraduate program where we offer fellowships and traineeships, internships. However, our supervisors uh, were so grateful because they embraced the idea that you have to develop the pipeline from early on. You cannot wait until they're in college for them to develop this interest in space. Uh, NASA, of course, has a strong interest. They need more engineers, they need more scientists. And so it was trying to develop that interest in space-related activities. And this is where we came in. We were so fortunate that um, they embraced our program. And we started off with them uh, running, continuing running our summer space camp called Future Flight Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And then branched off from there to do family science nights. Um, and we were continuing to do robotics that we helped start 21 years ago. And so it became a multi-pronged approach. I mean, ours is primarily on the informal side. However, uh, we did a lot of in-class programs, uh, visited classrooms uh, live uh, throughout Hawaii. We did uh, after-school workshops. We developed three-credit courses. And so, you know, in our way, we were trying to encourage that pipeline uh, Mm -hmm. by developing a strand, a context by which uh, teachers could teach using the context of space to tie in the various subject areas. Mm -hmm. And Reen, I, you know, as I mentioned a second ago, I've, I'm like super interested in this idea, but I'm also interested in the idea that um, that we be that we talk about the difference between generalists and specialists. Um, and so I think my question to you, Reen, is um, if a child is traveling along the pipeline that Art is describing, what do we need to do to make sure that their thinking is big and broad um, enough to make them citizens of the world and not just experts in one particular area? Oh, that's a very compelling <laughs> proposition. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, I, I think we have a record of students now, adults, who are in great places because they have been faithful. They and their parents have been faithful to that pipeline, that stepping stone mm -hmm. along the way. That support of a child's interest begins so early. Um, I really think that 
everyone who is looking to a child's best future is thinking about supporting the various stepping stones, whether it be art, science, literature, uh, to, to support that. Mm-hmm. And Art, you've talked, um, I've, I've read in a number of interviews that you've done and podcasts that you've done about the idea of integrated learning. And it sounds like that was something very early on your, on your radar uh, when you began as a teacher. So is, is part of this process um, integrated learning so that kids, even if they might be tracking towards, you know, an interest in space, are um, at least exposed to or have an opportunity to think philosophically or to think historically or to think about the relationship maybe between space and music, if there is one. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of my, uh, the catalyst for me was uh, taking students to the United States Space Camp in Alabama. Uh, The first year we went, I quickly realized that if you give the students an inspiring opportunity like Space Camp did, that they were willing to work really hard because there, they were getting up, eating breakfast and having classes all the way to nine o'clock at night every day. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how do they do this? So it was really the context they're using that they were going to fly a simulated shuttle flight that tied the curriculum together. So all the components in order to prepare them for that. So I really believe in um, outcome-based education in the sense where we're running a mission that there'll be a combination. Mm. So when we developed our space camp model, it was based upon uh, our future flight model is, was based upon having a mission, whether the mission was going to the moon, to Mars, or to planet Earth. And I can tell you that I think my favorite memory of our program was uh, we ran a program called Mission to the Blue Planet, where students would come to our program representing aliens from another planet, mm. bringing to our planet a seed to plant, the only remaining seed in the universe. And the students had to study soil, the air, water, to determine the proper environment in which to plant this seed. What was really neat was uh, in the debriefing, which the student teams would do, uh, students would tell us, we decided not to plant this seed on your planet. It would become an invasive species. And we thought, home run, we got it. Wow, that's that's fantastic, Art. That's a what a great story. You know, um, before we go to break, I'll just share with you real quick that um, while I was at the University of Iowa getting my undergraduate in history, I had the opportunity to hear Carl Sagan speak at Hancher Auditorium um, there on the campus, and the title of his lecture was a question. It was, "Is there intelligent life down there?" And um, his lecture, he he posed the idea that he was an alien from outer space, um, circling. Um, our blue planet. And he was trying to answer that question about whether there was intelligent life down there. Unfortunately, the conclusion he came to was absolutely not, um, that, that uh, humans have been making mistake after mistake. Um, but it was, a, it was a very special moment for me because of the way that he posed that question. Um, it got me really thinking about ways that I can help spark students' interest by helping them to develop those big essential questions as well. So that's a great story. Yeah. We wish many others would have that kind of experience to meet somebody as noteworthy as like a Carl Sagan. And Rina and I have been really lucky. I got to meet Carl Sagan at a lunch in Kona. Hmm. And uh, 
I we've met some amazing people. I wish everyone could have had that experience. You know, Chuck Yeager, John Glenn, those kinds of historical figures. Yeah. And each one, even though we didn't have deep conversations, was such an inspiration just yep. to talk story with them. Yeah, a spark moment for sure. Yeah. So, hey, everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Art and Reen Kimura. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Art and Reen Kimura. So Art and Reen, I did a two-part interview um, earlier um, this year with Dr. Helen Turner, who is the Vice President for Strategy and Transformation at Chaminade University. And Helen is on a mission to bring women and indigenous peoples to the fields of science research and data research. And her contention is that these fields are profoundly changed and the research becomes richer and deeper as, as we as a society and, and we as a society benefit when science research and inquiry is inclusive of all cultures and ethnicities. So, Reen, let's start with you. What are your, what are your thoughts about this um, in the context of all the work that you've done over these years with art? Uh, are you referring to the framework of uh, cultures and, and place-based education? 
Yeah, definitely that's connected to it. It's it's the idea that when science research or data research is only done, uh, to use kind of a crude phrase, by old white guys, um, we don't we don't get as far as we could as a human species. That this kind of work needs to be done by everybody, and most especially now, including women and people from indigenous cultures. So that's that's really what it's yes. what I'm asking. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Um, over the years, Art and I have had very diverse experience um, and travels. Uh, early on, being uh, stationed in Montgomery, Alabama, shortly after Martin Luther King mm. uh, was assassinated, and then propelling over to Okinawa, where um, the Okinawan community was not happy with the American presence. And we were a part of uh, the players of these scenarios. And then returning back to Hawaii, I always felt really grateful that I grew up in a um, neighborhood in Wailukumawi, where my neighbors were of all ethnicity. The children played their simple childhood games, girls and boys. We grabbed the bat, we pitched the ball, we slung um, lassos at each other. I grew up not feeling so much the difference between boys and girls, men and women. And I always look to my female teachers with admiration. And going through the Girl Scout program, I always had great role models in academia, in uh, um, child rearing. So it became quite a shock to me as I began um, investigating the trends of education and careers that we need to encourage girls and women toward the highest standards and goals that they can achieve. And so Art and I have been very fortunate with Future Flight Hawaii over the years, we saw more and more parents encouraging their daughters as well as their sons to enroll in our program. So I feel like uh, we really are making slow but sure progress. And I'd like to continue cheering everyone on. Mm -hmm. And Art, what are you? What are your thoughts about what uh, Dr. Turner is doing at Chaminade to bring different, um, to bring you know women and and Native Hawaiian peoples, Indigenous peoples into the fields of science and science research? Absolutely, I think it's critical because they're they're a part of our population that's been underserved in many ways. Uh, I think on a practical sense, uh, for example, in our scholastic robotics programs. It was clearly evident early on that it was a male-dominated program, that we would talk to teachers, and oftentimes, although there were girls on the team, the boys would kind of ignore them, their input. But uh, we've seen such good progress in this area. We have all-girls teams now, and we have, I think, not close to 50%, but we have a larger percentage of our students now in scholastic robotics that are women. Mm. Um, 
for Native Hawaiians. We're very happy to see a robust program on com in communities like Molokai and in Waianae and award-winning programs as well. So I think slowly we're making progress in this area and we need to work harder though. I think each of these uh, populations bring new perspectives to, to the study, to research and certainly we need to value what their input is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this is what Dr. Turner's contention is, is that if you look at it sort of from a 360 perspective, if you've got all these different perspectives coming um, into the fields of science research and everything else, um, you start to get something that is richer and deeper than it might have been before. So that's super interesting. Um, so Arden Breen, my colleague and very special friend and a m major member of your fan club, Mark Hines, um, offered me a couple questions to ask you in this moment, which was super fun to work with Mark on this. So we've kind of talked about this before, but I want to I want to revisit it. Uh, the issue or the, the topic through Mark's question. So he asks, a good deal of your work involves connecting students to real work in the community, robotics, exploration, engineering. So can you talk about um, an example or two that really exemplifies why this matters? And I think what Mark's really asking here is the impact on students when they get an opportunity to do this. Art, let's, let's start with you. I think on a, robotics would be a really good example of that. Um, our mentors, many of our mentors come from the community. They're retired engineers. They could be computer programmers. They are people uh, that we've worked with that actually the company provides them with time to come and work with the students. So students get to work with professionals, not just out of a textbook or from a video. They're working with real professionals in this area. So they're great role models. Um, but the other part of robotics has been the fact that we, we need volunteers. So the volunteers come um, as judges. They help us in, in various roles during events that we host, like uh, tournaments. And so, again, there's another opportunity for the community, for professionals to interact with our students. Um, we also work with sponsors, and there we've developed a nice network of people that are willing to support it, organizations that are willing to provide funds, uh, volunteers. And so I, I'm personally so appreciative of the opportunity to work with a wide ranging uh, number of people in our community, not only educators, but professional people as well. Mm. And so, Reen, kind of along the same lines, um, during a video presentation about you and Art uh, being named as Living Treasures of Hawaii, you spoke very eloquently about the intersection of the sciences and the humanities. Um, and you know that for more than 100 years, we've taught subjects in silos. Um, but you seem to be arguing for a more Inter interdisciplinary approach to learning. So why is that, Reen? Well, I think also going back to my growing up, um, down and dirty in, in little Wailuku town, uh, you know, having to clear land for our parents and, and also walking to the library, <clears throat> etc. The diverse experiences uh, keep reminding me that our lives are um, integrated, are interrelated. Hmm. 
The relationships are all woven in together. You just can't separate them. I had a very difficult time in the classroom uh, separating the subject matter. I like to bring them together in little experiences or field trips or um, uh, producing outcomes. I saw them all coming together integrated. And so that has been the more natural way of designing um, a unit of study. Mm -hmm. uh, one very good example of integrating the sciences and the history was my early, early involvement with the concept of the Hokulea, mm. which is deep in history, rich with stories of a diverse group of people coming together for their own essential discoveries but really looking to the sciences to help them propel into the future. And uh, when I worked with the early project of the Hokulea launching, um, my students and colleagues at the school, we all worked together in showing the power of integrating the various mm -hmm. learning tools. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's been a more natural approach for me to see things all connected, having a timeline, uh, having a technology uh, progression. That's all been natural. And I like seeing that exhibited in the students who've become professionals today. Mm. They appreciate it all. Mm -hmm. And Art, in that, in that same video... Uh, the, the Living Treasures video, you talked about living effectively in a human-made world. What did you mean by that? Well, as we know that uh, we've developed a pretty solid science program, chemistry, biology, physics, but we live in a world made by humans. You live in a house, you're in a car, you're in an airplane, you drive on a road, all made by humans. So Dr. Nia Olis, who was the driver behind the effort to put engineering in our curriculum, he was a president of Boston University. I got to hear him at the University of Hawaii when they brought him in as a guest speaker and also watched a number of his videos. It's a very compelling argument that we, we don't teach students about the world they live in, essentially. Mm. He was baffled the fact that um, you know students in New York City, for example, spent a month on studying volcanoes when they didn't understand how a car works, things mm. like that. So I always ask students uh, during our family nights, for example, when you go home tonight, turn on the faucet when you brush your teeth and explain to your parents, where did the water come from? Mm. How did it get to my house? How did it get clean? You know, we're not, we don't understand that side of it. And it's a perfect opportunity to integrate, I think, our science and math and technology into some relevant learning. I think what really was intriguing to me was we hosted two science presentations from a super science high school in Ehime, Japan. Uh, we convened a panel of educators and scientists to listen to their presentations by Zoom. And what I quickly realized was these students took real world problems. They didn't take something abstract. They took a problem they had in their town where they're understood there were too many plastic bags being used for shopping. So they did a study on cloth. 
using lasers to determine the strength to make better recyclable bags. They also studied using light to increase the nutrition of vegetables because in their town, they found seniors were taking too many supplements. So I like that approach of taking real world problems. And now we are linking schools in Hawaii with them because they want to do joint research on global problems, such as microplastics and things like that. So mm. uh, it's pretty exciting to work in this arena right now. Mm-hmm. So um, I just want to return to robotics for a second, um, Art. I, I read in an article um, which referenced the fact that that Governor Linda Lingo back in 2008 called you the father of robotics in Hawaii, which was pretty cool. Um, you made a comment, Art, about the fact that the connection between a kid going through a robotics program and the uptick in the number of students in the University of Hawaii's College of Engineering program um, has was has not been well studied. Um, that you were making you were making that causal connection, but you are noting that there hasn't been enough study around that. So if you could wave your magic wand and activate and pay for a group of graduate student researchers, what connections would you be most interested in gathering data about? And what is what is the value of that data to education as a whole today? I think we, I personally like to see the outcomes. I mean, there's a large investment of time and resources into these robotics programs from elementary through middle to high school. We see the end result of the number of students that end up in engineering. We've had a number of students working in our office that came through robotics programs. And so we've seen anecdotally the results of it, but we've not had a formal study done. I would love to see something like if you started with 500 students at uh, this level, what happens to them at the middle level and the high school level? Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, there's a huge program. Uh, there's huge elementary programs like in First Lego League, uh, Vex IQ. Um, what happens to them when they leave the elementary school? How many join a middle school program? How many join the high school program? How many are inspired to go into some STEM career? So mm-hmm. um, we've not done a formal study like that. I, we've tried, but there's all kinds of privacy issues that go on. And mm-hmm. you know, how do you find enough money to actually do a 10-year longitudinal track? Yeah, is, has been challenging. Yeah, yeah, understood. Um, so, Reen, I'm going to have you answer. We're just down to the end here, and I've got a few more questions for you. I'm going to have you, Reen, answer this one first. Um, over the course of two seasons of this podcast, I've heard numerous stories about Hawaii kids excelling at local and national competitions, be it robotics or student news or design thinking, etc. So my question is around the value of learning under competitive circumstances. So, Reen, what are your what are your thoughts about that, especially given as you and Art have done this work over these decades that you've been you've had a front row seat to this along the way? It's very interesting that you should ask me this because I think anybody who um, has known me, um, heard me or observed me in the robotics arena, from administrators to parents to students, I've always said the reason why I do this is because this is an opportunity for students to learn to learn about themselves, 
about their future dreams, about the way they best learn, about how they can collaborate and gain soft skills. Uh, the competition has been secondary for mm. me. I've always been interested in students having that opportunity to see themselves and see themselves as part of a, a contribution, uh, not so much for winning mm -hmm. awards, but for learning the academic and soft skills that come with joining a project like robotics. The scenario is in incredibly gratifying. Mm -hmm. And Art, what are your thoughts about this, about, about the value of, of competitions and the kinds of learning that happens and maybe the extent to which it elevates um, a sense of fun when you do things like this? I think the competition goal, whatever the game is, and in robotics, the game changes every year, which is the cool thing. Um, it's, it's important. I think students need a tangible goal. I know if we just introduce robotics in a classroom without that end goal where they're going to try and score points or do this and that, uh, it would become kind of a wavering path. The inspiration would not be there. I think trying to achieve more uh, by designing or programming the robot toward that end is, is great value. I think like Reen mentions, though, there needs to be some tempering of the winning part of it, but looking more at honoring the, the process. Because I always tell parents, robotics to me is not about building robots. It's about learning life skills. Mm -hmm. It's about kids learning teamwork and problem solving, communication, time management. No matter what you go into, those are valued skills that you can take with you. So unfortunately, uh, fortunately, I would say the majority of teachers get it. They understand the, the idea of competition, but tempered with what the learning should be. Uh, unfortunately, we have had some highly competitive situations. And mm -hmm. so, again, we have to deal with those things. But it's like sports. I mean, imagine a football season yeah. without a game. Yeah. Practice football every day, but there's no game to play. Yeah. I mean, what's what's the value of that? So yeah. Yeah. there's yeah. a place. Yeah. I think one thing I'd like to mention is that we've had the privilege of attending the Japan Super Science Fair for nine years. Uh, 20 countries get represented in this fair. It's a symposium, week-long symposium. And what startled me when I first went was that students came with a research project that they presented, like a science fair project, but there were no awards given. Students presented for the purity of the research. There was always a panel of commentators that would comment give positive comments, supportive comment. And that's really, I enjoyed that immensely to see that, mm. that kind of uh, perspective. Yeah, that, what a marvelous story, Art. That's, that's fantastic. Um, okay, so just two more questions here as, as we come up uh, to our hour. Um, and I apologize, this one is going to be a really big one. <laughs> um, but I've been waiting a while to ask you. Um, this question, because you've had such a front row seat to so much of education here in Hawaii and even nationally. So, um, Art, I'll start with you. I, I, I want to talk about school leadership. Um, what does wise school leadership look and sound and feel like, Art? 
Well, I was a school administrator my last five years in the Department of Education, so I saw that side of it. It is a huge challenge. I mean, I give credit for anyone wanting to become an administrator and also having the vision and the fortitude to, to withstand all the factors that you have to work with to make, make it balanced right. I think the ones that I truly appreciate, the ones I would go to battle with, I can honestly, I could put them on maybe fingers, one hand finger, because really it takes, takes a, an extraordinary administrator to me to make that kind of change. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, they have to work on so many constraints where they're mandated to do this and that. They have to look at their test scores um, and they're measured by that. So everything's geared toward that. Um, that's really unfortunate to me that um, we should allow you know, schools to fail in some ways and by setting the bar higher. So if, if the bar is higher, not lower the bar, make the bar really high and work toward that. Mm -hmm. um, I saw examples of that, a student that would transfer from the school I was at that was not doing well with maybe lower standards than another school, transfers to the school that a higher standard, and they rise to the challenge. And I think mm -hmm. we need to take more of that kind of attitude that um, set the bar higher, not, mm -hmm. not be satisfied with 51% of the kids can read. Let's set the bar to 90%. And even if we fall short, I think we need to reach higher. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. We need to take risk, I think, as administrators sometimes and really work with the teachers, which I'm sure many of them do, but really get their buy-in to whatever you know, the plan is for the school. Mm -hmm. And Reen, what are your thoughts about the skills and habits and dispositions of a, of a wise school leader here 21 years into the, into the 21st century? You know, it's interesting because I personally feel um, uh, reading various articles and listening to uh, webinars and podcasts, I think the education of our globe is changing and leadership has to be ahead of that. Mm. Leadership has to develop a worthy vision for their citizenry. And I think this time of transition is going to be a true test of our state, of our nation, of our globe to be able to move together with worthy leadership. I think we can do better in schools to develop leadership skills. Hmm. That too has to come from a pipeline. Mm. I think in the school government, in the school community, we have to begin recognizing traits of leadership among peers, student peers, and among faculty, as well as administrators um, having willingness to as Art said, take risks in areas that have been tested and recommended for, for our entire mm. country. Mm. So I think the leadership skills um, also needs a worthy pipeline. Mm. 
You know, Reen, I've been privileged to be a part of uh, at least an observer, but I was also an early evaluator of of a charter that was written that uh, resulted in a, a charter school being formed in Eva Beach called Dream House Academy, um, which is um, currently middle school and growing, um, but it's focused on the development of leadership skills and identity skills. And I'm so hopeful in this moment uh, that these kids, um, who some of whom might end up being school leaders in the future, that would be wonderful, uh, will have such a keen sense of their own leadership as they go forward. And I, I really hear you when you say that leadership by definition needs to be out in front, not reactive from the back, um, which Absolutely. seems like that happens a lot these days. Yeah. So, Absolutely. So as we as we come to the end here, I'm going to end with another question from Mark Hines, um, who asks, um, what is something about you that most people don't know, but you would like them to because it tells us something that matters to you and motivates you? So, Reen, let's start with you on that one. I'm a grandmother. And that makes me um, old. I'm still excited about what I can do tomorrow. And I have a long list of things I want to learn. I want to listen to people who have that wisdom and insight already. And um, although many have seen me as being very busy with work or tasks or even events, organizing, um, volunteers. As a person, not many know that I enjoy stepping back and looking at my list of things I'd like to do and learn still. Wow. So, and I think that is a definition of a learner. <laughs> it is. Wow. Uh, it absolutely and, and is, Rin. Right. Being the learner perhaps makes you appreciate good teaching. Mm -hmm. And so, Thank Art, you. yeah, absolutely. Um, Art Reen has set the bar very high here for you. <laughs> She's given something very special for us. What, what is your response to that, to, to Mark's question? Well, I feel I've always felt so privileged to be in the situation I have been. I think I've been in the right environment. I worked with the right people. Um, I think it came with an attitude to not say no to the possibility. And I think that's one thing we try to relay to young teachers is, you know, don't take that untraveled road sometimes, you know, that, that may lead to things that you cannot imagine ever having happening in your life. When I look back at my 50 years in education, I am so grateful for the opportunities that were given to me. Now, I, I was voted the shyest person in my graduating class in high school. So my colleagues are shocked that I became a teacher. <laughs> I became an Air Force officer. How did that happen? So, you know, things happen like that along the way. I got labeled. And I, I frankly, I am shy. I, I have a difficult time in, uh, in some environments. But, you know, taking advantage, um, putting you in that uncomfortable situation sometimes makes you grow a lot. I, I think so. Mm -hmm. It's been a real privilege. I, I think the 
One thing that most people don't know about me is the fact that uh, some of my hobbies are 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 hidden because we they only see us at work. But you know, I enjoy outside of work some really fun things to do. So thank you for that question. Yeah, and I understand one of those fun things art is fishing. You love fishing. I do. I'm, you know, we, I fish regularly on the big island. We had two beach houses down in Kapoho. Unfortunately, both got covered with lava in 2018. So I've been looking for a new place, a safe place where I can start fishing again. Mm -hmm. So so thank you, Art. Your, your response really, really touches me. I, there was no formal poll taken, but I easily would have won the most shy kid in my graduating class as well. And sometimes I look back and wonder how the heck, you know, here I am host of a podcast and doing all sorts of public things like what happened along the way. Um, but uh, so I love what you said about that. And um, I agree, uh, you know, with the both of you, it's just such a privilege to be doing this work. Um, and so thank you both for being on this podcast. Please stay healthy and safe in the weeks and months ahead. And thank you for all you do to engage our young learners in real world challenges. Thank you so much for having us, allowing us this opportunity to think along with you and and speak out about various issues. Uh, We wish everyone well. And my first intention is to be volunteer number one. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Love that. that. I'd like to close my portion by having Reen explain a Japanese uh, phrase that we have used on our business cards. And for many years, we repeat that. It's called Ichigo Ichie. And this really reflects upon our belief system. Mm -hmm. A famous tea master in Japan um, coined that phrase, and it's quite well known in Japan. You can find it on Google. Ichigo Ichie. This moment never to be repeated, which we translate as living in the moment listening to that person, that student, keenly cherishing that moment and growing from there. That's fantastic. Art and Reen Kimura, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Recently, I started a new way to end my episodes. I'm a great admirer of Hawaii Business Magazine, which does a series each year called 20 for the Next 20. This series highlights mostly younger folks in Hawaii who will be powerful forces for good in the next 20 years. I will end each episode by highlighting one of these amazing individuals. McKenna Kaufman has become a go-to person on local environmental issues, everything from climate change and sea level rise to electric vehicles and emission standards. She is the director of UH Manoa's Institute for Sustainability and Resilience and the chair of Honolulu's Climate Change Commission and a member of the University of Hawaii's Economic Research Organization, otherwise known as UHERO. Yuhiro's Summer Lacroix said the following about McKenna, and I quote, She is the rare person who is able to listen carefully to others and to tell you exactly what she thinks. McKenna has exactly the breadth of knowledge on economics, the environment, and urban planning needed to analyze critical climate change issues facing Hawaii. 
Thank you, McKenna Kaufman, for all you are doing to make Hawaii sustainable. We appreciate you, and we are excited that you are one of Hawaii Business Magazine's 20 for the next 20. This podcast is inspired by the book, What School Could Be. Please join the newly launched What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, stay safe, wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and for the love of the gods, get vaccinated. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho, and we will see you soon.